If you'll open your Bibles to John 17. We will focus on verses 11 and 12 this morning, but I'm going to read verse, verses 11 through 16. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. I am no longer in the world. Remember, this is Jesus praying to the Father. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves, And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This morning we want to take a moment to consider the idea of the keeping of of the saints, the keeping of the saints. The overall theme of verses 11 through 16 is this keeping of the disciples. The Father had given them to the Son before time, and the Son accepted the Father's gift. He came in time, the Lord Jesus, to save them and to keep them safe for the glory of both the Father and the Son. Quote, keeping them in your name, Jesus prayed, as he, the Son, already had been keeping them. He was making preparation for the shift work of the disciples. Now, I want you to think for a moment that you're seeing some important transition here, and you're seeing it in the prayer of Christ. This transition is so important in emphasis that one writer says, Jesus speaks as if he were already gone. I am no longer in the world, he says in verse 11. He anticipates the effect his absence will have upon the disciples. How will they fare without him? Many a movement has collapsed on the death of a strong leader. Jesus' intercession then is intensely practical. Now think for a moment that we're seeing in Revelation here this prayer of the Lord Jesus. There were a few standing around who would have been able to uh, witness this prayer, but this prayer has been kept uh, in historic revelation for us so that we could know and see and have some understanding of what the Lord Jesus was doing. It's as though he's giving this great preparation in the sense of his prayer, for his disciples. It reminded me in reading of R.C. Sproul in his biography how over about a 10-year period they were planning for the future of Ligonier Ministries in light of R.C. Sproul's aging. He had health difficulties. 
and that they knew one day he would pass away and be with the Lord. And so they took about 10 years for all of this kind of planning to take place. And when we read the phrase, I am no longer in the world, this is a sense in which we can see the planning between the Father and the Son that had been going on in eternity past. It's a glimpse, just a a moment of a glimpse through almost this, this peephole to be able to see that Jesus is saying, this is being worked out and now a transition is about to happen per the plan. He says, I am no longer in the world. Number one this morning, Jesus prayed in prophetic understanding concerning his work. Jesus prayed in prophetic understanding concerning his work. Although at that moment he was still physically on the earth in sinless flesh, he knew his work was almost complete on the earth. Soon he would be resurrected. Soon afterwards he would ascend into the heavens to be with the Father, continuing his ongoing work of intercession. All of this looking toward his second coming. Yet, his intercession will not end after all his covenant people are safely gathered in eternity. Christ's work, although it is eternal, it was coming to an end on the earth at this time. And he knew it. And he says, I am no longer in the world. There's a prophetic understanding of what Jesus is saying in the prayer to give a sense of a a transitory statement in prophecy. Recognize this phrase is a prophetic transitory statement from the one perfect prophet. Recognize this phrase as a prophetic transitory statement from the one perfect prophet. The Puritan, George Newton, says, He would go, number one, because what business he had there was finished, and number two, because he has very much to do where he is going. We have to be careful when we read this portion of the prayer that we understand the Lord Jesus is not making some strange esoteric statement. I am no longer in the world as if he's floating on clouds or something. Um, This is a statement of prophecy. He's saying we're, we're in this moment of transition. He's only, uh, you know, a few hours, uh, less than 48 hours from his death on the cross. He's, you know, 43 days from his ascension. He's thinking in terms of the fullness of the plan to save a people and to keep them. It's amazing to read that the Lord Jesus could pray in such a way because we could never pray this way. Only the Lord Jesus could do these things because he's the one perfect prophet. Here's just an element of Christ's office as prophet. And we see the elements of priest and prophet and king wrapped up in the prayer. 
in verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, the idea of his full kingship, the context of Jesus being the priest of his people, that he would die for them, the ones that were given to him. And here as prophet, I am no longer in the world. I'm setting up this transitory phase where I will be ascending to be with the Father and continue my intercessory work. Also, recognize that Christ's fleshly body departed this earth. So we cannot and must not worship Jesus in bodily presence. In this phrase is just wrapped up some significance. I am no longer in the world. We need to understand that we do not worship Jesus in bodily presence today. There are different religions, and I say different religions because they're different, where they still have Christ on the cross where they still worship in the sense as if Christ were still there. One writer says, There are many in our day who profess to worship the bodily presence of Christ. They are idolaters in doing so. The body of Christ is at the right hand of God, not here on the earth. And all sensuous worship of him as present in body, whether in religious ordinances or in the more gross form of matter supposed to contain or represent the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is idolatry. Now some of you might think, well, that was written by the Puritans way back in the 1600s. It was actually written later uh, by another pastor named Marcus Rainsford. Uh, It's only probably about 150 years old or so. There's a recognition which our modern-day evangelicalism doesn't want to deal with. The Roman Catholic religion, in its full sense of everything that it does, is not biblical Christianity. And one of the reasons that it is not is because it continues to keep Christ in its worship in the bodily presence. It does not recognize rightly in the mass who Christ is at this time. Furthermore, it's the context of keeping around the idea of relics that you could somehow worship something left over from something that touched Christ or was wrapped onto his body or even maybe, as some think, there was some strand of his hair left, and they've kept it. It's a caution to us to realize that we are to worship God rightly according to his word and to see that the Lord Jesus himself bodily is ascended with the Father. We cannot bring him back and worship things that we might think would be helpful to us that are not in the scripture. We are not commanded to take things and bring them into the house of worship and hang them up and keep them in some way, in some appeal for the vision 
and the senses that we may worship God in that way. When he says sensuous worship, he's not speaking of the sense of uh, something uh, that, that might be sensual. He's speaking of our senses. And a lot of worship uh, from the Roman Catholic Church is about the five senses. That's why you have the smells and you have uh, all the idea of them with their aromas and bringing those uh, canisters down the aisle and they spread these aromas because you're supposed to be worshiping with all the five senses. Any of these forms and ideas and relics are to put Christ in the improper place of not being the ascended son. When Jesus says, I am no longer in the world in this prayer, he's reminding us that we will worship him in spirit and truth. For us as Protestants today, we have lots of our own ideas of things that we bring in to the worship of God that are not useful and necessary and that they go directly against God's word. I remember how uh, I served a church where they had these banners and they would bring them down the aisle and the crown of Jesus was supposedly on top of the banner. It was a symbol. And people wanted to have that banner in the baptistry. This was not the worship of God to have these banners brought in. We're not commanded to do those types of things. We are commanded to worship God in spirit and truth. This is why historically Protestant Baptist churches have had very simple worship. It's been very biblically oriented and simple. Because we're recognizing what Christ is saying about himself. That he is no longer in the world. And we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So with the sense of this transitory statement that he is no longer in the world. We have a recognition that the Lord Jesus is bringing his disciples before the Father. Saying because this transition is happening... And yet they themselves, verse 11, are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. This is the only place in Scripture where this phrase, Holy Father, is used. Jesus recognizing who he's coming unto. Holy Father, the one who gave me this gift of the people and I accepted them from you in eternity past. I'm coming now to you, the only holy Father who may keep them. Number two, Jesus prayed for the protection of those the Father gave him. When he speaks of him as holy Father, he's saying, I've been keeping them, but the only being who I can come to to know for sure that they will be kept while I walk into this transitory time of the cross and the tomb and then the ascension. The only one who is, can keep them and keep them fully, holy, and rightly 
is you, Father, the one who gave them to me. Jesus prayed for them knowing he would no longer be with them in physical bodily presence. He knew he was leaving them in the world. Now, you have to remember, we read this quite often. If you've been reading your Bible for years and you hear those phrases and they kind of stick with you because you've, you've read them so many times. But can you imagine the disciples who might have been hearing these words? They've known Jesus in bodily presence. That's how they've known him. Peter did not know Jesus at the incarnation. Peter knew Jesus when he was called to be a disciple. These men were hearing these words and saying to themselves, What? You're doing what? You're going where? You're not in the world. You're standing right here praying. What are you talking about? When we read these words, they are a comfort to us because we have better understanding of the new covenant. But for the disciples at the time and in the moment, this brought more questions than it did answers. So as they're hearing these words and they are in some confusion, probably mentally some dismay and concern as to what's about to happen, and they've already heard previously, remember, the Lord Jesus prophesy of his own death and resurrection. They're hearing these words. It's just almost depressive probably to them in some way. And so this prayer, as the writer said earlier, becomes very intensely practical. Because in the midst of their depression, their dismay, their concerns, they're being lifted up and interceded for by the Son himself, given this to the Father and says, keep them as I have been keeping them. The Lord Jesus knows their weakness. He knows how they will struggle. He knows how Peter has professed who he is as the Christ, and yet he knows that Peter will deny him. And so who better to keep them but the Father? Who is the only one capable of keeping them but the Father? Two thoughts here. This present sinful world is not in its final refined state. True enough, the Lord Jesus is the king. He is reigning, and there is no doubt about it. And yet, this present world is not in its final refined state. It is by the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus that the disciples, not only then, but through all the ages, will be kept in preservation to the very end. It is this intercessory work that will keep them till the end of the time of the ultimate refiner's fire. 
we are seeing the Trinity in very practical ways and needful ways. For who else could the Lord Jesus have entrusted with the gift of his people but the Father who gave him? Secondly, this present sinful world is not safe for believers without perfect protection. This present sinful world is not safe for believers without perfect protection. Why would the Lord Jesus have to call upon the Holy Father to keep them in his name, the name which he had given the Son, the name that had been proclaimed through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus? Because left to themselves, these disciples would be in this world that's in downgrade by sin. And they could not keep themselves. In a way, this prayer not only is a prayer in the moment, but it's a prayer with historic significance and prophetic significance. Without this understanding and without this prayer in the sense of what the work is behind it, there is no one that could be protected. No one that could be protected in eternity apart from the upholding keeping between the Son and the Father of the covenant people. Well, Jesus prayed for them knowing he would no longer be with them in physical, physical bodily presence. But we have to think about this. Although Jesus in body will soon be removed from this earth, his disciples will be left to their prescribed work. There's another reason the Lord Jesus is praying for them. Because after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, there's a whole ministry of work that has to go forward. The very uh, beginnings of the new Covenant church, in its essence, is going to begin with these disciples. How are they going to go forward with that work? They're going to be carrying on this gospel and this good news. Although they're not the Messiah themselves, they have to carry the truth of the Messiah forward into the, the very uh, corners of the world, so to speak. And they're the ones going to be doing that immediately after his ascension. The Lord Jesus is praying, keep them. Keep them safe for their own eternal context and yet keep them so that this work will go forward rightly and properly. Jesus will have accomplished his work and will ascend leaving the disciples but not without the promised spirit. In the chapters previous to this, the promise of the spirit becomes all the more important. The Spirit is given uh, to the, the disciples in a way, and what we will call later the apostles, but this promise is made to them, and they're seeing the Spirit in a way and understanding the Spirit in a way that no one really had understood in that context before. And yet the Spirit had always been working. They're going to have a work to do, and it's going to be very difficult and very hard 
Just consider the life of Stephen for a moment. Here's a man who begins to preach the truth of the Messiah. And as he preaches that truth, what happens? Everybody cheers him and loves him. They all accept everything he says. And they go throughout the whole world dancing with one another and singing songs of joy. Is that what happened? No. He's persecuted. He's murdered. Who is going to keep them? This Trinitarian work of the keeping of the disciples is so important. It brings us to a place of pause to recognize we should not think too highly of ourselves and be thoughtful about what is taking place in our lives. If you go out of your door tomorrow and go to work as if no big deal, you've forgotten that you are being kept by the very God of all the ages himself. Wake up in the morning. Give thanks that you were able to draw another breath, awakened to the day, and look toward that day and ask, Father, in the person and work of your Son, keep me that I may do your work and glorify you today. Or else you may go about your day as if none of that matters. And the gospel will have little, little impact in your daily life. Thomas Manton says, Jesus would go, number one, because there he would do us the most good, speaking of the heavens. Number two, because there he would prepare our place in the heaven. Third, because there he would plead for us most efficiently. And number four, because there he would then send his spirit. His coming and going was all for our good. Now, once again, we've gotten to read ahead. We have all this other knowledge, but the disciples hearing this in the moment, hearing this prayer would have been like, whoa, 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 wait a second. They have no understanding that the intercessory work of Jesus, the ascended Lord, is far greater in the context of what needs to happen in the future. Certainly his life, perfect, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are all hugely important. We can't take away from that. But Jesus is already thinking in that I am no longer in the world. He's thinking ahead in this prophetic ministry to say, there's something really important that I need to continue to do to keep them and hold them. So while I'm in this transitory work of the plan that we have fashioned before time began, Lord, you keep them, Holy Father. You keep them. Probably, it brings us to a question. Why does the Lord Jesus leave them behind? Why doesn't he just take them? One writer says, because it is a natural law that we should live and die here. 
the Lord Jesus had his work to do. And based on the sin of Adam and Eve and the natural law, we have our work to do. And it is the natural law that we live and die here. And so it was with the disciples in that day. He goes on and says, number two, because only here would grace be proved and improved. The grace of God is shown in our living and dying here. In our living and dying here, the grace of God is proclaimed. The grace of God is believed upon by the work of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God is shown to this world because there are many who are being saved. And although it is the stench of death to many that hear it, it is the aroma of life to many others. And as they live, grace is proved and improved. Thirdly, the writer says, because being left here, we would yearn to be there. True Christians have a yearning to be with the Lord. I'm not trying to make that sound strange or morbid. I've said that to people before, and they're like, well, you're kind of morbid. Um, I'm not necessarily like looking forward to death because I just want to die. That's not... The idea, but the idea is, is to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord means that this, this body of death is no longer reigning. Because it is true in natural law that we will live and die here, my hope can't be just simply in my own flesh. It doesn't matter how hard I work to be a decent and good person. I will not be able to stand before God safely in my own righteousness or good deeds. So therefore, true, genuine Christians, even young professing Christians, ought to have a real desire to be with the Lord and when we're not with him, to follow his commands. And if I have zero desire to follow his commands and I ought to be thinking about what is wrong with my life. There's just no other way to put that, really. If you're really a person who's just all about what you want to do, and yet you call yourself a professing Christian, then you're not thinking rightly about what it means to be a Christian. True Christians desire to follow the commands of the Lord Jesus. Doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. And we want to genuinely repent of our sin. But if you and I don't really have that desire, and we're more about just kind of doing our thing and then throwing a little Christianity in there so that I feel safe and get a little fire insurance, you've misunderstood the whole of the gospel. The Lord Jesus is not saying, Father, keep them so they can sprinkle their life with a little Jesus and then do what they want to do. He's saying, no, Father, keep them. You are holy. I am holy. They are your people, and they are to follow in holiness. Brings to the fourth thought of why we are left behind, because here there remained much that is left to do. We still have work to be done now as disciples. 
We are carrying forward this gospel. Even as we gather here today, we are signifying to the world that there's something different about us. Something different about this day. As the world drives by to whatever else they're going to do, they see a parking lot full and wonder. And sadly, there's many who pass by and don't even think twice. But for us, this is a testimony and a testament that to worship our God rightly is more important than anything else because he sent his son to die for us that we would be kept. That's why we desire to live Christ-like lives and follow the commands of Christ is so that we are able to say to the world, I'm not doing this simply for my own good or that I might be looked upon as some fuddy-duddy or whatever. I'm doing this because this is what God commands and he sent his son to die for me and the son is interceding on my behalf and he did so even before he left this earth. Even before then, he was praying and interceding for his disciples and asking that the Holy Father would keep them. I think the Lord Jesus didn't have this prayer as just a sideshow. He meant it. He meant it. He was praying for his disciples that they would be kept. Well, lastly, under this point, although Jesus had been keeping them, That's what he says in verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. Although Jesus had been keeping them, he did not leave them unguarded. God, be thankful for that. As a husband and father, if I have to leave my home and go out of town, I... There's always this little thing in the back of my head. I, I really kind of hate to do that and leave my family, and, and, and I'm not there if something happened. You kind of feel like, am I leaving them unguarded? When children grow up and they begin to go out into the world, as parents, we kind of hate to see that. Why? Why? It makes us nervous. Are we letting them go into the world and they're unguarded? When the Lord Jesus says, I was keeping them, he's saying, I've been guarding them. I've been protecting them. And now that I will go and do this work which must be done and then continue that work into eternity, Father, you keep them. Because I know you can trust them. I know I can trust you to guard them. The other thing that I want you to recognize this morning is the word name is in here several times. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. When you read the idea of the name there, don't look at that as something, you know, just, I think sometimes people just look at the name of somebody when you look at their name, you're thinking about who they are. And we talked about this in verses 1 through 5. Realize that the name of God is an understanding of who he is in his being. When Jesus is saying, I kept them in your name, the name which you gave me. He's saying, my name is associated with your name. And that association is a name of holiness and purity and sovereignty. That, that is a, a, an association of all that is right and good and true. If there's beauty, it's in you. This is not haphazard words about the name. This is specific understanding of who God is. And who better to know who God is than the Son? When he says, I and the Father are one. I want to leave you with two observations this morning. Number one, remember the world is no place to be left alone without a gracious guardian. Remember, the world is no place to be left alone without a gracious guardian. Thomas Manton said, The devil does not fear us, but the guard that is about us. If you think for one minute Satan fears you, if you think for one minute the rebellious world fears you, then you're mistaken. The only thing the rebellious world will fear and it may not fear it rightly now, but it will fear it one day. Is the one true living God who is the guardian of his people. And Satan already knows him. And Satan fears him. So much so that he has to lie and deceive to try to get his way. Even to try to deceive the son in temptation. If you think you can make it through this world without knowing and believing and trusting in Christ alone, then you have not understood this world. You have not understood sin. And you have not understood your own flesh. The activity we see here in these two verses is an active activity. There is something taking place in action that is like no other, and it is the active guarding of God's people. Now, to some degree, when we think about guardians, some of you may think about the idea of uh, the guardians of the palace in Britain. Now, you've seen those guys and you may have seen some of the videos where people go up and try to stare at them and make faces and all those kind of things. And what's interesting about them is they stand there very serious 
very, 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 very focused. And people try to get them off kilter. But when you see them go into their mode of guarding, it becomes very active and purposeful. And everyone around knows how serious it is. I saw a video of several people, a couple of men and ladies, they were trying to, you know, get in the face of one of these guards. And they didn't realize that there was a troop of the guards moving through. And here comes the troop of the guards moving through while they're trying to distract this other guard. And they're not moving out of the path of these six or eight other guards as they're marching through. And as they get there, all of a sudden, get ready. Hold up! They wanted them out of the way. We're the guards of the palace. You do what we say. The guards of the tomb of the unknown soldier. Go try to get in their face and see what happens. It becomes active mode. The God of all creation is no less the guardian of his people. It is active and moving. It is that which he does. He keeps them. He guards them. He will not lose one of them. What greater comfort is there that you would have a guard who would not lose you even when the battle is the worst, when the bullets are flying everywhere? He will not lose you. Would you not repent and believe in him? Or will you continue to sit and act as if it doesn't matter? Please, please. Our souls hang in the very balance of eternity when we look at the things of Christ and think little of them. We see even here there's an understanding that there are those who are not kept and that is just as active. Those who do not believe are not kept. And as a matter of fact, they are kept away. For not only do they hate the God that made them, but they will bring great distress and detriment to those who God has kept. So he will protect those who are his from those who hate his people. We have a gracious guardian. We should not be left alone in this world without him. Lastly, remember even those given are prone to wander. Remember, even those given are prone to wander. Jesus, in this portion of the prayer, says, Keep them in your name, verse 11, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. We must be careful with this phrase 
not to in some way impose something on the prayer and the text that is not here. This is not a moment of Jesus proclaiming in prayer perfectionism for those who are his. The idea of the oneness here is not a univocal sense of us being as holy as the Father and the Son are once we are kept in and on this earth. There is in one sense a recognition that they who are kept will be one in their desire and yet because of remaining flesh they will need to be kept because they will be prone to wander. And yet there is a futuristic sense that one day all those that will be kept will be brought in safely to the kingdom. Not one of them lost, not one of them left behind. And they will be brought in and brought to true congruence with all of that which is in God's holiness. We will not be God We will not be as wise or knowing as God, but we will be brought into congruence with his commandments and there will be no more sin. And we will be able to worship and know him and learn of him without sin in a way that we were never able to do on on this present earth. But when you read that statement, recognize even those given are prone to wander, so we need to be kept by a gracious guardian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to us as you were your disciples in that day. It would only be within a few hours of this prayer that the disciples would deny and scatter. They would wander away from those truths which they had come to know over those past almost three years. And yet you were keeping them. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table today to give glory to you through the person and work of your Son represented in the bread and the cup, will you give us moments of pause that we would understand we are in need of you to keep us. And sometimes you're in need, we are in need of being chastised by you. We wander and we stray. We think that we are in control. And we often do not bow to your sovereignty and ask for your continued grace and give thanks that you give it consistently. And you give it so mercifully to us. We praise you for who you are in your person of the Father. Praise the Son for all that was done 
we give glory to the Spirit who continues to apply these things to our souls. Glory be to you, the one true living God in three persons, blessed Trinity. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.